What a great time of worship building up into us looking at the Word of God this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we continue on with our sermon series through this, uh, through this book. Um, it's with quite a bit of really anticipation that, that I come to chapter 13. Um, chapter 13 is probably one of the most well-known uh, scriptures in probably the world. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard at least part of chapter 13 talked about. Um, as we talk about love and what that looks like, and we generally equate that then with marriage. And it's like, this is how we're to act towards each other, husband and wife, um, as we think about the middle verses of this chapter. But the reality is, is that this chapter wasn't primarily written to a husband and wife. Primarily, this chapter is written to us as a church. Uh, And it's written in the context of the church and how we are to act towards one another. um, From one aisle to the other. uh, From one side of the church to the other. From the front to the back. And so... It's with a great deal of anticipation that I come to this because honestly I had to rack my brain whether I had ever heard this passage preached in any other context than a wedding. Um, and, and to my mind, I could not think of a time when it had been. And so I come to anticipation for that. The other reason I come to anticipation is because this is one of the few chapters in 1 Corinthians where Paul's not incredibly mad at them. And I was kind of excited to preach a text that wasn't based on frustration, um, but rather is based on communicating a, a great truth about how we are to love one another based on the love that has been given to us. And so I hope that that you share in my anticipation this morning, not just in the topic that we're looking at, but just in the anticipation of what the Lord would have to say to us this morning. And so hopefully by now you've found 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I would invite you, if you're able, to stand with me that we may honor the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these 
is love. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we come to this well-known chapter, this well-known passage in your scriptures that you have given us for our encouragement and also for a commandment. Lord, I pray this morning that we would not close our ears to your word thinking that we have already heard this, that we would not grow complacent thinking that maybe we already understand it, but rather we would approach this chapter with fresh ears and a fresh heart, desiring that you would speak to us anew through it, that we may look more like you, that we may love the way that you have loved us. Father, we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. When we were in youth group, when I was in youth group, uh, we, it was not uncommon for boys to boast. I, I know that's surprising to you. Um, but it's not uncommon for, for young men to boast in their accomplishments, and no matter how meaningless that would be. Uh, whether it be a high score on Madden football or whether it be the number of kills on Call of Duty, which, by the way, you should not play young children, um, or, or whether it be whatever, we boast. And so it became a joke in our youth group or, or, or a reminder of our desire not to boast and that we shouldn't be doing that and that we should be humble, that when we would hear another individual boast when we would hear another individual take great pride in their gifts and in their accomplishments, um, that if it had gone on too long or if it had gone a little bit overboard, someone in the crowd of the youth would mutter, look at my humbleness, I'm the most humble person in the whole wide world. And it would be met with laughter usually, and the, person, the individual would nod and be like, yeah, I get it, and, and that would be the end of it. You know, Paul does something similar here in chapter 13. Paul has been talking in chapter 12 about the gifts, about spiritual gifts that we all receive from the Holy Spirit that are perfect and are perfectly placed in the church. And he says that as those gifts are given, that they are to come together in the church and be united in unity. And yet what has happened in the church of Corinth is that they have become boastful. They have become proud of their individual gifts. And they need someone to come along and say, look at my humbleness. I'm the most humble person on the whole earth. And so Paul has been talking to them about the fact that there's a place for each one of these gifts and that all are valuable and all are needed in the, in the church. And yet at the end of 12, he, does, he leaves us in this Excellent little cliffhanger. He says at the end of chapter 12, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And then he begins chapter 13. And he begins to talk about the topic of love. And how love is crucial as we practice these gifts. First, he helps us to understand in the first three verses that good gifts can be used for good. He talks about speaking with tongues of men and angels, and certainly there is great good that can be done in communicating. He says that we can have prophetic powers, we can have knowledge and understanding of all kinds of things, and certainly knowledge and understanding is a great gift that has been used for great good 
not only in the church, but outside of the church. That we can have a great faith. That we can face any difficulty that might come our way. That we can be incredibly generous people. And we can have the gift of generosity. And that can play out in our lives to the point where, if asked, we would give away everything we have. And we can even be so passionate about our cause that we would be willing to pay the ultimate price. We'd be willing to give our life for that cause. Paul says all these are good things. There's nothing. There's good with tongues. There's good with understanding, with prophecy, with faith, with generosity. There's good in having passion, though it's sad that we would give, give our lives as, as martyrs. But Paul tempers that slightly. He says gifts can be used for good, but practicing gifts without love is empty. Practicing any of the spiritual gifts that God has given us without love is empty. And that word love there is not just any word for love. It's a love, it's a love that you and I, if you've been in church very long, you've probably heard talked about. It's agape love. It's an unconditional love that expects nothing in return. It is the love that Christ Himself portrayed in the cross as He voluntarily laid down His life. He laid down all of the glory. He laid down all of the majesty, all of the worship that was rightfully His as both God and a man who had lived a perfect life. He laid it down so that He could die the penalty that you and I had earned. He shed His blood so that we didn't have to. And then he rose three days later from the grave and he made a way for us to have a relationship and to know the unconditional love of God. We know that love. And now, Paul says, it is expected that we in turn offer that love, that it be a critical part of what we do. And that as if we do even good things without love, without this unconditional love that Christ has portrayed first for us, that we fall short. One good, and you've probably seen this done before with this chapter, but one good exercise would be to go back and read the first three verses especially and replace the word love with the name of our Savior. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not Jesus, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not Jesus, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not Jesus, I gain nothing. Paul says you can be a good person. You can be a good person and you can do good things. And if you do not have love, if you do not know Christ, it all means nothing. You communicate nothing. But I think it even goes farther than that because after all, he is communicating primarily here to the church. He's communicating to those that he is making the assumption that they are already believers 
And he's saying, if you do good things, even as believers, but you do them primarily out of a sense of duty, or you do them primarily out of a sense of maybe you're going to earn something, or you do them primarily out of a sense of pride or arrogance, then you fall short. If you try to talk in the tongues of angels or men, but you have not love, then you are communicating nothing at all because you're not communicating Christ. If you have all knowledge and understanding and you're the best preacher in the world or the best Sunday school teacher in the world and you are able to take the things of God and make them understandable to people, but you don't have love for those individuals, then you have nothing to boast in. When he says, I, you are nothing, you have nothing to boast in. If you don't love with the love of Christ when you do those things. If you have great faith and can move mountains with that faith, if you have great generosity and would give away all of your earthly possessions, if you would, are even so passionate as to give your life for the cause and you do not love, you gain nothing. All of it falls short without the love of Christ being evidenced in our life and then being expressed to others. So what does this love look like? If Paul says that this love is so crucial and it's at the heart of who we are and it's what we're to be about, then what does it look like? Well, love, he describes that in the next few verses. He says love changes us. When we practice this kind of unselfish, this un, practice this un, type of unconditional love that has been shown us through Jesus Christ, it changes us. It changes our attitudes. Look at verses 4 through 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. I like to read that a little different because he's, he's talking to us about our about how we interact with others. And so it may make a deeper meaning to you partly if we say this, love is patient with one another. Love is kind towards others. Love does not envy others. Love does not boast to others. Love is not arrogant over others. Love is not rude towards others. It does not insist on its own way to others. It is not irritable with others. It is not resentful of others. That changes it a bit, doesn't it? When we think about that, when we look at those characteristics that we are to have as believers in Christ that we're to show to each other, that we're to have patience with one another, that's not an easy thing to have and cannot be practiced well without the patience that God shows us? Or does it does not insist on its own way? I, I know that I've shared this story with many of you and I've probably shared it from the pulpit before, but when I was thinking about the, this week, I was reminded of an experience that I had in Madagascar. We were unloading a truck of brick and we were stacking it uh, so that we could help build uh, a church. And we were taking the brick out of the truck and handing it one person to the next and just down the line and then you stacked it and it was taking forever because each person had to handle each brick and it was like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here all day. 
And so I looked at the pastor who was kind of leading the, the situation. And I said, wouldn't it be much more efficient if we took a tarp and we just put the brick on the tarp and slid the brick down to the spot we were, spat, we were stacking them and then we could do that. It would be much faster. It would go much quicker. And I was very proud of myself that I had thought of this, you know, great ingenuity. Um, and my pastor friend looked at me and with great compassion and great patience, he said, what about Joe? His name wasn't Joe. What about Joe? What about Joe? Well, Joe doesn't have a full-time job. Job doesn't have any other way to make wages. And we have hired Joe today to do this specific job. And would you like me to send Joe home without a full day's pay? Would you like me to send Joe home without the money to buy rice for tonight? Of course, the answer is no, of course not. Of course not. I had the better plan. It was the good plan. It was more the more effective plan. It was the more efficient plan. But I had not thought of the impact of my plan. I had not thought of how it would affect or impact another person. And I could have stood there and went, yeah, but I want to go home. And I could have insisted on my way. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we think and know that we have the better plan and we are confident in that plan and we desire to do things our way. And it's a reminder of the great shortcoming that we often have when we do not love. See, love changes our attitudes. It changes how we see the world. It changes not only our attitudes, but it changes our desires. You look there in verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It changes the very things that we find pleasurable. Before Christ, we find no problem in what the world would call pleasurable. We find no problem in, in what the world does. And sometimes we even find great entertainment value in watching those things happen or participating in them ourselves. But, when we, but we, when we gain love, when we understand love, we see sin for what it really is. We see sin as destructive. That though it may be entertaining for a moment, though it may be, feel good in the moment, that in the long term it is harmful and destructive to the individual and to others around that individual or even those that are around us if we are the ones partaking. And in our love, we don't want to see that happen. As we see the love of Christ and what He has done for us because of that very sin and because of the need that was created, we now turn and look and we say, we don't want that for someone else. Rather, we want them to know the truth. We want them to, to live in the, in the glory and in the goodness of what God desires for us rather than enjoying this. Makes us question, by the way, what our entertainment is. It should make us question the things that we find pleasure in. And not only changes our attitudes, our desires, but it also changes our relationships. There at the end of verse 7, it love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Again, I would encourage you to, to read that the way we read the first verse. 
Love bears all things with all people. Love believes all things of others. Love hopes all things for others. And love endures all things with others. Those are some hard things to do. In a, in a day and an age, we've, I think we've spoken of this before, but in a day and age when we, we are often short when it comes to believing the best about someone else. We no longer, as a culture it seems, have the ability to give someone else the benefit of the doubt. To say, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way. To say, I'm sure they didn't expect that to be the outcome. I'm sure that they didn't think that all the way through. And if they could do it differently, I'm sure that they would. Rather, now we are quick as a culture and as a people to say, oh, they meant to hurt me. And oh, my feelings have been harmed. And my rights have been stepped on. They were out to get me. And we begin to think the worst of people. And especially when it comes to the church that we begin to think the worst of our own fellow brothers and sisters rather than to think the best of them. Rather than to hope for them and to hope in them that the Lord can do great work in them, we begin to doubt them and think, well, they'll never change. They're just who they are. And we begin to look over them rather than to hope in them. Or we fail to endure with them. This is one of the great parts of using this in a wedding is talking about the endurance of love. That it's primarily not an emotion, it's primarily a choice that we make. That anyone that has been in a relationship for any amount of time knows that there's going to be shortcomings. That there's going to be times when the other person disappoints us. That there's going to be times when we disappoint the other person. When friction is caused. And yet love is to endure. Love chooses to endure through it all. It can be said of us as church members. I know this is shocking, but church members are people. And people disappoint us. People are going to choose the wrong thing. People are going to do the wrong thing. People are going to frustrate us. People are going to cause us to want to pull our hair out. Even myself, as I read this passage, I was, I'm so thankful that God has placed us here. This is my first pastorate. Never pastored another church before. Done missions, taught, been in different ministries most of my adult life. But this is the first time that I've pastored a church. I have made mistakes, and I will make mistakes. In fact, my guess is is that my greatest mistakes are still in front of us. My greatest missteps are still things yet to come. And there are going to be times, if it hasn't happened already, when you're going to think, he's a knucklehead. What is he doing? Why is he doing it that way? Or, frankly, he screwed up. And I'm thankful That as of now, you have endured with me. The young guy who, when we first came here, (laughs) I still remember some of Spencer Creek calling my wife a member of the youth group. And uh, I remember standing in front of that that group that morning, and I can remember someone from Spencer Creek uh, saying to one of our members, not so quietly, he's young. (laughs) And uh, I, I just, so thankful for your endurance with me. My 
challenge is, though, do we endure with one another well? You love me well, and I'm thankful for that. Do we love others with that same sense of endurance? Those that we have known longer than we've known Brian. Those that we know better, maybe, than we know Brian. Does love impact our relationships? Paul ends this passage, this chapter, by talking about not only the fact that love is crucial and that love changes us and, and should make us look different, but he ends the passage by talking that love is a constant. Love is a constant. As opposed to the other spiritual gifts that he mentions in chapter 12, love does not change. He says there in verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Paul says love is a constant. Love is not time sensitive. Love is not time sensitive. All of these other gifts that we have, prophecy, speaking in tongues, teaching, preaching, generosity, hospitality, all of those other things will pass away. All of those things have an end date. And whether you want to argue that the end date was the completion of Scripture and the end of the age of the apostles, or you want to argue that the end date is the return of Christ, I really care not. The, the reality is, is that all of these gifts have an end date. And they will be, at some point, no longer needed. There's no need for, there's going to be no need for speaking in tongues one day when we all speak the same tongue. There's going to become a need. There's no longer going to be a need someday for a pastor or a prophet because we're all going to stand before the glory of God and know Him and know His Word and have a tangible, real relationship right in that moment. There's going to be a time when there's not going to be a need for generosity, so to speak, because we're all going to have the fullness of God's bounty at our fingertips. There's not going to be a need even for the gift of compassion because it's a place of no more grieving and no more grief and no more tears. But Paul says love is not like that. Love is eternal. Love will never see an end to its need and we will experience it forever. Not only that, but love is not situational. Paul says part of the reason that these gifts will pass away is because of where the situation that we find ourselves in now. We find ourselves in the situation here and now where we rely on faith, where things are not perfect. I love the analogy he uses there. If you go down to the end of that in verse 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. It's interesting that he uses this because Corinth was known for their mirror making. They were known for making some of the most excellent mirrors in all of the known world at that time. They, it was one of their major items that they shipped out to the rest of the Roman Empire. And yet even those mirrors, compared not, they were, they were pro- polished metal. And if you've ever used a, a bronze mirror or something that's polished, you know that it's, it doesn't have good clarity. Yeah, you can see things and, and it does reflect back, but the clarity is not the same as clarity of a, like a glass mirror, so to speak. 
And it, it, it's a little fudgy around the edges and a little fuzzy. And he says, we, we look at a mirror now. We see truth and we can see some reality and we can know God, but it is nothing compared to when we experience it then and there. I like to, a, a, maybe another or a different way of looking at it is to think about a photo. Have you ever been handed a photo or been the one to hand a photo of a beautiful place? And, and you sit there and the person looks at the other photo and, you, and they're like, oh, that's nice. And you say, well, you, you, you had to be there. Like the photo doesn't do reality justice. Um, rea- the photo doesn't really encapsulate the power of the place. You, you had to be there to really get it. That's what Paul's saying. Right now, we are simply looking at a photo of heaven. We're looking at a photo of the truth, and, and we can experience some of that here and now. Thank goodness for the Holy Spirit. But the reality is, is that we will not experience fully until the return of Christ. And at that point, there will be no need for these other gifts. But love will continue. Paul ends this passage, and this isn't a note in your, in, your part, in your sermon notes, but he ends this passage. He says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. He's talking of his relationship with God. He says, right now we just know a piece of him. We just have faith in him. But then I will know fully all of these things, all of these pieces that I've been putting together and he ends with this last one and I want to dwell on this just for a minute he says even as I have been fully known think about that for a minute that the God of the universe knows you fully we all have things every single one of us has things that that we would rather the world not know. We have secrets from our past or even secrets in our present that we would rather the world not know. Things that we've done, things that we've thought, things that we've said. And we we hide those. Why do we hide those? Because we think that if someone were to know the fullness of who I am, that there's no way they would like me, much less love me. There's no way that they would accept me, much less embrace me. And so we hide those things. And yet we have a God who knows us fully, who knows every mistake you've made, who knows every ill thought you've ever had, who knows the deepest and the darkest secrets that you hide in every closet. And he loves you. He gave everything for you. He knows you fully. And He forgives you if you will ask Him. That's an amazing thing to think about. We often are our harshest critics. And I look at my own life and I think, how could he love me because of this? How could he want me because of this? How could, this poss- how could he possibly use me when this is in my life? And our God responds, I love you. 
And he points to the cross and the empty tomb. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer. God has expressed that love to you already. You have known the love of Christ. You have known that unconditional love that, that doesn't care about all the other stuff. And God has called us to love one another in that same way. To be patient. To bear with one another. To not demand our own way. To look out for the best. To hope in one another. To love one another. Unconditionally. This morning, maybe you just need to look at this and you look and you say, I, there's forgiveness that needs to take place. Maybe I need to be the one to offer it or maybe the, I need to be the one to accept it, but there needs to be forgiveness because we haven't loved each other in this way. Maybe there just needs to be confession of, I, I want to change. I want to be this way. I want to use my gifts in the church, but I want to do them in love so that they matter. Maybe this morning you're here and... You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't know what, it's, what it means to have a relationship with the God who created you. And maybe this morning, you're one who would say, yeah, there's things in my life that I wouldn't want anybody here to know. And if you knew those things, you wouldn't want me here. Let me encourage you this morning. God knows you fully. He knows you completely. And he desires to have a relationship with you because he loves you because he created you, because he died for you. This morning, you can know that relationship if you will just trust him and believe in him. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up this morning. and No matter where you fall on that spectrum, I would pray that, and we ask that you would use this time as a time of response. Maybe that's singing with us and, and praising the Lord for what he's done. And his great love for us, maybe that's coming to the altar and, and confession or coming to the altar just seeking a relationship with him. Maybe that's finding someone else that you just need to have a conversation with this morning. Maybe that's just praying at your seat. But I pray that we would respond this morning to this great passage of love and hope that he has given us. Let me pray.